it's an ordeal for Washington. And it is, I would say, the most formative experience of his life. And it it also instills in him this deep-seated, much like Benedict Arnold, actually, this deep-seated feeling of inadequacy and shame. But the difference was Washington could be satisfied. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. My guest this episode is the presidential historian Alexis Coe, author of the New York Times bestseller You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. With this episode coming out on President's Day, Coe is here to tell us about the nation's father and first president, whose 291st birthday is also this week, and who over the centuries has had his life written about almost exclusively by men. Coe's book is here to change that. She is the first female historian to write about George Washington's life in over a century, and the first female biographer to do so in about 40 years. You never forget your first clocks in at a slim 260 pages compared to the thousand-page tombs on Washington's life that have preceded it, and which may currently be on your father's nightstand at this very moment. While these books devote hundreds of pages to Washington's battlefield accomplishments alone, Coe spends more time on Washington's accomplishments off the battlefield. He was a gifted tactician running spy rings and propaganda campaigns that were just as effective as his military strategy. She also tells us more about his mother, who has been portrayed by other biographers as overbearing and dim. But there's more convincing evidence that shows she was a single mother who worked really hard to support her family financially and to help both of her children make connections in upper society wherever they could. We also can't talk about this era of history without talking about the slaves who worked for the Washington families to keep them, quote, land rich, as Coe describes it, or the indigenous peoples whose land it was first. And as a biographer, Coe takes care to include their stories throughout this entire book. In this interview, Coe tells us about Washington's difficult boyhood, how deeply involved he was as a father to his stepkids Jackie and Patsy, Coe calls him a helicopter dad, and how much he initially didn't want to be president. I can't recommend You Never Forget Your First Enough. It's such a pleasure to read. It's fascinating, and it injects humor into a genre of biography that has otherwise been stone-faced and about 800 pages too long. Here's Alexis Coe to tell us about our country's founding father. You have coined an incredible term for this biographical canon of, of George Washington, a series of biographies over many years, mostly written by men and read by dads. And you call these books the thigh men of dad history. Who are the shy men of dad history? And how did you come up with this incredible phrase? It was like like most of my titles and the things people 
seem to enjoy, you know, they're dumb jokes I make, um, usually initially to myself and then maybe to some friends. I was trying to figure out a way to describe the historians who study Washington, which have been predominantly men and biographers, you know, completely male. There have been a, two women who have written biographies, but one was a journalist and another was a novelist. They're, they're, they adhere to like a different standard, which is not to say that it's not good or rigorous. It's just different. And that was 40 years ago. So really it's been possibly hundreds of years before, you know, since a woman has written a biography of George Washington. So it's super male dominated. Mm -hmm. What was surprising about it is sometimes, especially with the founders, historians will wax rhapsodic and it reads like a romance novel. And sometimes I would almost blush, you know, Chernow, Ron Chernow describes Washington's rippling muscles, you know, and like it is straight out of a romance novel. Um, but, you know, it's funny because these same people would sort of denigrate that, you know, everyone has their own, I guess, kink, shall we say, but they all agree that his thighs are sort of incredible. And like, they're fine, you know, from what I can tell from the six portraits. I, I don't know. I think Hamilton kind of gives him a run for his money if we're talking about it, but I would never talk about that because, you know, only, only because I wrote this now, I have to talk about it all the time, which is the irony, but it would never, it, it seems to be inappropriate because of course, if someone described a woman's thighs in a biography in that sort of way, it would be odd and they would go on for pages and it didn't get us any closer. And so I, I was trying to sort of talk about this, this worship of the masculinity that doesn't tell us anything. So it's like just empty adoration, which also seems kind of inappropriate for a biographer. We have to keep some distance. We can't, we can't be thirsty for our subjects. If we, if we are, we have to sort of check ourselves. I do it all the time uh, with other, with other people. <laughs> and um, so I started, I started just referring to them as the thigh men and I put it in brackets, um, meaning like, I'll, I'll find a better phrase for this. And every second reader I had, because I depend on historians, editors, friends um, for every book, they all took it out of the brackets and they said, this is brilliant. And they capitalized it. Mm -hmm. And the, my rule with second readers is that they all agree, kind of have to take their I have to take the advice, uh, like, and I have to say thank you. And so I did, and I was a little bit nervous. Um, and what it did was um, not only described a group of people, but it also did what the title does and the cover and all these other things, which is show people that one, you can have some levity with the founders. It's not all veneration. It's not all celebration. And um, it told them that this is the book for them because presidential history has excluded not only because it's written, I, I always say it's like written for us, by us, about us. And that's true. You know, women have traditionally and people of color have been excluded from this genre. And I can't help but notice that we have had one black president and no women presidents. And perhaps there's some sort of connection. It's such a it's such a great framing. It's, as you mentioned, a, a realm of biography. It seems like you in this book written about men by men for men is how you phrase it. And that when historically women and minorities have had the opportunity to write about Washington, they've focused the narrative to include people who were marginalized in this time, which was essentially anyone who was not a white man. Um, and so you take special care to tell the stories of enslaved people who worked for generations of the Washington families to explain who they were and how they were so deeply affected by the Washingtons who, typical of slave owners of the time, didn't seem to really understand the effects of any of it on them. 
Well, they, they didn't think that it was possible. It's hard because it, they just denied them the sort of humanity that exists. Um, but, you know, to exclude them from from discussion in sort of every chapter is is the sign of a bad biographer, right? As a biographer, you have to look at how they lived every day. And every single day, enslaved people were part of their lives, a huge part of it. From the, They woke them up, they set their fire, they lit the fire, they warmed the beds, they gave them the breakfast, they got up for hours before, they tended to every, like, these people were completely dependent on enslaved people, hundreds of them. So it is just impossible for me to to talk about it and not think about it, but it's hard to reconstruct. How do you construct, how do you know the slaves who were in the room when he died, his manservant who replaced his other previous enslaved manservant, Billy Lee, comes in to help him essentially get comfortable to die? Um, yeah. So these enslaved people are included in the biography in ways you mentioned it was difficult to weave together how did you do it did you read diaries i'm sure you went through all the letters how do you construct something like this in that level i mean all of the above yeah all of the above there's documents that exist that washington wrote in his own hand because this is um you know an economic transaction for him these are the people who work his five farms these are the people who uh work in his house and so, um, and he also, you know, if they have children, that's more capital for him. That's property. Mm-hmm. And so everything is in his ledgers, but in a really straightforward way, you know, a woman's name, her age, her children, that's about it. And then we get little diary entries too. So he'll mention that he's moving some trees, he's planting this, he's doing that. And he might mention someone by name, but rarely. And then we have letters from Washington to overseers. And that's where you get a lot of the details because they're talking about discipline. They're talking about output. They're talking about maximizing output. It's really tricky because you're never going to get their story. You're never going to get the perspective of the enslaved people, um, very rarely, uh, once or twice in in Washington's case. Um, And so it's about squeezing everything that you can out of what's there, not being lazy, being as interested in the enslaved people as you are Alexander Hamilton, and then really listening to the silences and understanding that within the context of uh, greater studies on enslaved people. And then remembering that this was Washington held the the title of master the longest of any other title he had. He became the master of 10 enslaved people when he was 11 years old and he was born into the system. That's not an excuse because there are many people who were, who, who thought it was awful and came to different conclusions. Um, Washington was sensitive of the optics of it after the war because he had interacted with so many foreigners, like, you know, the Marquis de Lafayette. But otherwise, you know, he was into maximizing. That number grew. It started out, this time that it grew and grew and grew to hundreds of people. And a part of Martha's appeal was she came with many, you know, many more enslaved people. You are seeing these people on their best day and their worst days. And that is something to hold, just like, you know, you have to hold that he was the general and the president. And he also was this enslaved, you know, um, an enslaver, sometimes a brutal one. Mm-hmm. One of the earlier chapters in your book um, is a, a reference to the title of your book, um, which is You Never Forget Your First, but we do misremember him. And going into this sort of general lingering Um, stories about him, the wooden teeth, not true. We know that he had dentures that were made from the teeth of enslaved people. The cherry tree didn't happen. All of these sort of tales that just keep going and going. 
down to a tale that I repeated to you when I asked you to come on the show, which is that his mother was this controlling, very critical woman. This is the result of the thigh men doing all of the speaking over the past, you know, many centuries of, of writing about Washington. His mother, Mary, who had a very difficult life and had to make a lot of hard choices at a very young age, is sort of relegated into this personality type that doesn't quite necessarily fit her against what we have to work with from letters and, and diaries. Just starting with Mary, starting with his mother, what was her life like? It didn't start great for her, right? No, I mean, and this is what's fascinating. And Mary is responsible, I think, for me deciding, okay, I have to write this book. I have to write this book. And so to back up, I would say that in presidential history, there are two ways that mothers are treated. One, they are just exemplary <laughs> of Republican motherhood. And, and that means Republican, like the Republic, not, you know, the GOP. And that they are best and kind and they just love and help them get ahead in life. And then there's the shrew and the shrew thwarts him. And uh, a lot of women fall into the latter category. Very, very few fall into the former. Mary Washington was just sort of like viciously treated, <laughs> just viciously treated. And particularly by Ron Chernow, who, you know, of Hamilton fame. And so part of it, I, I thought, okay, this is what's going on with enslaved people too. So like, maybe this is just a lack of curiosity, but there was one difference between all the biographies about Mary is um, Chernow cited the scene where he's like, Mary Washington comes in like a bat out of hell. And she, you know, starts yelling at him and says, demanding this and like, oh, and I thought, oh my God, did Ron Chernow get an exclusive on the archives? Like, how is this so very different? They all mention this letter, but it's like, I just didn't understand. And so I went into the archives because I'm a historian. This before I had a book deal, before I wrote a proposal, before any of it. And I looked at the letter and it was not like that at all. It said, my mother came along with my cousin and my brother and other people. And so I'm delayed meeting you in Richmond. So it was just an excuse because he was late and he needed, you know, to blame someone. But, but what was so interesting is, so Chernow reads that and he picks Mary out mm -hmm. and he decides that she has made him late. And not only that, but he imagines this whole scene. And the more I kept digging, the more I found that was true. And then I looked at this giant, you know, then I just looked at all the literature from the very beginning and I found that conceptions of her had changed over time, you know, when, when, as conceptions of mothers had, when we wanted mothers to be doting, she was doting when we didn't want them to be, she was too doting. And then that was a problem. And, you know, it, it went on and on. And then I just sort of looked at Mary Washington as a person, you know, as a whole person just on her own, because actually I'm not even sure Washington was her greatest success. She had a daughter and the daughter married very well within Fredericksburg, considering their place in society at the time. You know, she was a single mother at that point. And she really like ordered a ton of stuff to present as, as a competitor. And I think that was probably her, her, you know, the jewel, if you will, of her, of her life and her crown. But Mary Washington is fast. And one of the things that, that Chernow called her was illiterate. And that was another sign for me that something was like real hinky because I have letters from her. We've read them. He quotes them. So this was a class thing. It's amazing she could read 
And she read the Bible an awful lot. All of the kids, Washington, her other kids, grandkids, they all quoted the same passages that they said she would read. So clearly they knew she could read. We should accept she could read. Um, and there are even some like kind letters in, to Washington. And so I thought, okay, so she's illiterate. She's all these things they're saying that aren't true. And then I realized it, it is a class thing, but it's a miracle. And it's a great American story. One, I think that we should be celebrating, which is that Washington was the grandson of an indentured servant. Mary Washington was born to an indentured servant and she managed to marry well and then give birth to the first president of the United States. Like, oh my God, that's amazing. But Washington had a lot of shame about his background too. And so I almost think that a part of this is they were just like not, not interested in women. And then the other part is that they wanted to give him the story that he probably wanted, which is beautiful, but not our job. I think what I didn't realize about his childhood, George Washington's father, he had been previously married. Mm -hmm. His first wife died. He had children from the first marriage. Yes. He dies when Washington is 12. Is that right? When when he's 10, yeah. 10. So he's a little boy. He loses his dad. And then the dad gets buried with his first wife, which could yeah. wait for Mary. <laughs> Pretty. It's a burn. And It's a burn. And then he leaves everything to the children from the first marriage. Yes. Including Mount Vernon. Well, the children from the first marriage are grown and they've already benefited. They've been sent to London to be educated, which is like how you get ahead as a colonist. Mm -hmm. They are, you know, they've had glory on the battlefield. They have purchased homes. They're married, but they get everything because that's sort of how it goes in early America, unless you really go out of your way to, to give your second family a fighting chance, shall we say. And that didn't happen. And that was the other thing is um, the Washington biographers went out of their way to make it sound like Washington just like mourned his father his whole life and that he had this super close relationship. And that's not really the case. But you know, what that did do for Washington is at 10, he became the head of his household. He became effectively Mary's husband. And he struggled with her to the point where he had to drop out of school at 14. And she would often try to send him to see those siblings, those half half brothers because they had done well and they were advantageous to him and she really like and that's the other thing is not only was she not thwarting she was doing everything she could including not marrying the best thing for mary washington would have been to remarry because she's managing a, a home where like they grow tobacco and have enslaved people not a lot but enough and she has disputes she can't dispute things with merchants because she's a woman, but she does it anyway. She shows up in court and she's like, yeah, no, I own this. I'm going to try and 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 get this to be fair. And um, it, so it's really like a tremendous choice that she makes. And it's an ordeal for Washington. And it is, I would say, the most formative experience of his life. And it, it also instills in him this deep-seated, much like Benedict Arnold, actually, this deep-seated feeling of inadequacy and shame. But the difference was Washington could be satisfied at different points. But when he's young, he's just a social climber. Like he wants to marry any woman who's rich. He's always writing to like any rich dad. And they're like, she doesn't like you. He's like, but are you sure? <laughs> like, Maybe I could try again. And this is before he starts to get glory. He fights for the British. Um, but it's really remarkable. And I do think that that being the eldest son from the second marriage um, shaped him far more than his father or any of the male influences and his mother. Absolutely. 
and and that drive that it instills in him um you know and his mother too as you know in the book there's this idea hatched from i think maybe with his step brothers or people that were in this more elite world that she would sort of expose him to that he should go and enlist and, and yeah mary's like no he'll die <laughs> yeah it was crazy they they like hatched this plan his stepbrother or his half-brother lawrence and the family lawyer and such they had to plan that like yeah yeah washington is 14 right so he has to drop out of school yeah. and there are many things that a 14 year old in early america can do to get ahead the most dangerous is is joining the navy as a colonist the the attrition and mortality rate was abysmal you made next to no money, so it wouldn't really contribute. And it was very hard to get ahead. You know, you're just a boy. You're just like everyone else. So Lawrence would, would the half-brother would write home to Mary Washington when she was married to, you know, Washington's father about how awful it was to be in the Navy. And he was like a ranking officer. So she was, what are you doing? And it just seemed very likely that Washington would die. He would be thwarted. It would be a very bad experience. It's something you did out of desperation, right. not, not opportunity. But I think they were just like, let's help this guy. You know, let's, this is, this is something that's like really easy instead of like a more difficult thing that she wanted, which was much better for him. And in fact, it, it made all the difference in his entire life, which is that she decided, hey, he, Washington can't be in school anymore. She comes from like this, she has the medal from being born to an indentured servant. She's like, we're going to make do. He likes math. He was good at math. She knew that. And his father had had a surveying kit. And so she gave him the surveying kit and, you know, basically put him on a horse and said, go ride your half brother and get all his rich friends to hire you. And Washington very quickly became the youngest and most successful surveyor in all of um, Culpeper County, which was his county in Virginia, where he lived with his mom. When just to fast forward to the end of his life, Washington dies as one of, if not the greatest, one of three landowners in America. He is cash poor, but he is land rich. He could have sold it any time and been okay if anything happened. And he acquires it like he he almost like it's not totally noble the way he acquires some of it particularly when he's in, he's fighting for the British and, and in the Virginia militia, he sort of takes it from some of his officers. Um, so it's very clear, you know, I talk about him being land hungry and it's, it's clear that she saw that in him. So that was what was also really interesting is how clearly she saw him. And you use that phrase a lot in the book, the, the um, land rich, but otherwise. Yeah. Cash poor. Because it's, it, it, he has to borrow money to go to the inauguration. But you're like, you have a huge plantation of forced labor camp with five farms. We're our biggest whiskey distillers in, in America. What is happening? Why? Why? And But also wearing, you know, diamond buckle shoes. The cool diamond shoes and cute coat. Yeah. For the inauguration. Yeah. He, he seems to be sort of strapped the entire his entire life, even though he lives quite comfortably. And obviously, as we've mentioned. Yeah you know i think 300 slaves by the time he he died but that that drive of wanting more and there's these sort of like amusing exchanges between him and the governor of of williamsburg virginia who's like hey go do some submissions for me and george washington's like yeah but when are you gonna pay me and then kind of like yeah. like privately complaining to people on the side but kind of keeps doing it and some of the missions are sort of disastrous right his early 
military career is not smooth sailing always. It isn't. It isn't. It's weird. So because of like, we have to understand that like at a geopolitical level, we have all these empires fighting for land in America, you know, Spanish, the French, the English. And Washington like gets up in it because he is fighting for Governor Dinwiddie, the last Virginia royal governor. And he, though, you know, he's like, he's, he's very organized and he is a, he is born leader and he, he's a good athlete, you know, and athletes always sort of have a, an advantage in these, in these scenarios. And so he's doing pretty well, but he makes his like disastrous choices. And one of them is he is paired up with the half king, an Indian leader to go on a diplomatic mission. But there, a lot goes wrong. There's a lot of miscommunication and it basically it ends in a French diplomat being assassinated. And Washington writes to Dinwiddie about this, but he doesn't even get there for pages because he's just complaining. He's complaining about his pay. He's complaining about this, complaining that. The thing is, this assassination set off a world war. So if the revolution hadn't happened, Washington, if he was known, if he was known, would it just be known for like, this colonist started a world war. It was the French and Indian War, the Seven Years War, as it's known in, in the UK. And like, we don't talk about it. Um, not because it's like shameful, just because it's not a part of, like it's co- it's colonial history technically, but it's really formative because then Washington goes to see Governor Dinwiddie in Richmond and he gives him all his diaries. And Governor Dinwiddie is like, oh, oh no, like we're in trouble here. We started a world war, but you know what? I'm going to spin this. Washington's travel diaries are like pretty awesome. He's not a great writer, but he is meticulous. And particularly in his younger days, he spent a lot of time um, and was far more detailed and so Dinwiddie basically has them published first in the colonies and then he sends it, you know, to to the UK and to London. And people love it because they're not going to come to America and like visit the wilds of the Ohio. They're not going to come to the America, period. It's mm-hmm. crazy here. And so they're just going to like read about it. And Washington becomes like a little bit of a thing. And that changes his situation quite a bit because it puts him on Martha's radar. And Martha is this young, I read a piece in the Smithsonian where I said, don't be fooled by the bonnet. She, we think of her as this older lady, but she, it was in, when Washington met her, she was six months older. She was in her mid to late twenties and really good looking, mm-hmm. really good looking, beautiful brown hair, beautiful eyes, nice figure, um, no bonnet, no bonnet to be seen. Mm-hmm. And she was she had two children, which was in early America, great news. We are obsessed with biological connections. They were not because it, all you needed was an heir and you needed a set hands mm-hmm. and you needed proof that the woman could have a child mm-hmm. because of course it was her fault if, if, right. if you couldn't have a child. And so, and, and even better, these children were two and four. And so he could really just swoop in and, and become their dad. But the best part has yet to come, which is that Martha's first husband was the last man in her family to die. Her, She watched her father-in-law die. She watched her half-brother-in-law, who was an enslaved man, die. She watched everyone die. She was in a unique position in early America. She controlled her finances completely. And not only those finances were great, much, much grander than Washington. Um, you know, hundreds of enslaved people, something like 50 acres, lots of businesses. And she was good at it. And she's getting all these like gross letters from men saying like, I want to bed you. I have 10 kids. I want 10 more. He's not interested. And then Washington goes to Richmond uh, because he has dysentery. 
And this is, you know, when I say in the book, like, this is the first time I've read that, like, a great love story it starts with dysentery. They've met, like, briefly, you know, in at a ball or something. And they basically like, go to a dinner party. And she's like, oh, yeah, Washington, I read that journal. <laughs> I like your style. And he's like, oh, you know. And, you know, sometimes I'm asked, did he love her? There's a quote by John Adams that Washington wouldn't have been Washington without Martha. And she was his retirement plan from the Virginia militia for sure. She loved him. I think he was definitely into her. And I think very early into that marriage, if he didn't, he very quickly did. He loved her. Absolutely. He wanted her by his side, even as as they got older. Um, We don't know about their sex life. We don't know about those sorts of things. But but there's a real um, connection and yearning and safety and friendship. Yeah. And it's true that she was with him a lot. He wanted her with him a lot. There wasn't, there weren't long stretches of silence between them, seemingly. She also burned their letters. Um, yeah. So you don't know a lot about, maybe maybe they were too sexy. Maybe it was for pride. <laughs> um, maybe. That he, I mean, as you note in the book, he's quite proper. You know, he has kind of like a, a horny scoundrel friend that sends him like yeah. a joke and Washington just sort of brushes it off like we don't talk about these things like he's pretty proper it seems like even when it's just colonial locker room talk mm-hmm. um, yeah but you know he becomes a stepfather and also we talk about you know infertility is always a woman's fault it's pretty likely from an early illness that he that Washington was sterile that he couldn't yeah this was the other amazing thing is that the Thymen would go on and on about like all the ways that women can't have children. So for instance, a uh, uh, difficult childbirth, there is absolutely zero evidence that Martha had a difficult childbirth. If anything, it seemed because it wasn't written about, it seems uneventful. These things were written about right. and they're fine. You know, if anything, it was like, she was a real champ. And yeah. then, um, but Washington, however, he had so many diseases. And one of the things that he had was smallpox. And it seems very likely at 19 that he became sterile. But there's this anxiety around his masculinity. And for me, I'm like, the dude is masculine. <laughs> like, no one is questioning whether George Washington is a manly man, or even if he's the manliest of all the men. Fine, take it. No one disagrees. So why are we going on and on about like this anxiety about virility, which is just a thing that men get anxious about, that women don't really get anxious about? It's like a problem. If it exists. But the suggestion of it doesn't really bother us. But we don't know of any heirs. There are no heirs in existence. So it seems, again, like like all this evidence corroborates this fact that like she could have children. You could not. But however, I don't want to say that we call him the father of our country. He was the father to so many people. So Lafayette dropped off his cake for a couple of years. Cousins, nephews, nieces, you name it. And he was like involved. But he also raised those children like they were his own. So Washington marries Martha. She comes with Jackie and Patsy. Washington is hands on. If anything, he's like a helicopter. And and Patsy tragically has epilepsy and and dies in his arms as a teenager. She dies. Yeah, at um, sixteen or seventeen, and then Jackie's kind of a ding dong and like ah, there do well, all of them across uh, the board. Well, yeah, all the founders' sons, except for John Quincy Adams, they were all like just nightmares. Yeah, so like the rich, the the nepo babies of the colonial era, not really interested in being serious about anything. And, yeah, and then Jackie 
dies early too and leaves Washi and Nellie, two grandchildren. They're in it again. Jackie died at um, at Yorktown. He was only there for a minute. I don't want to make it sound like he was some great fighter. He, he joined as a secretary at the end. But he did die. And then the Washingtons raised his ch- two of his children. I always wonder, like, the other two were not chosen, shall we say, to, to be raised, which is like a bummer. Here's the thing, like, Washington worked so hard to please them and encourage them. And, you know, Patsy was definitely, you know, he felt quite fond of her. And she was two when they got married. And he he was always trying to figure out things to stimulate her. And, you know, education was not as important for women, but he did prioritize anything she liked from music to dancing to whatever. But he is writing to tutors and he's just buying every chance he can for them because he didn't have these opportunities. You couldn't just, you know, get every medicine available for for something, you know, they didn't know it was epilepsy for what they think is going on. He did he he hired all the best tutors, he sent all the best schools. But what he could not give any of these kids, and particularly the boys, you know, Jackie and then his son Washi, was the struggle that that Washington had had, the the lack of resources. And so the irony is by giving them everything they sort of could do nothing or they chose not to. And Martha also, like this was their biggest conflict in their marriage was she babied the hell out of all of them. But watching like on a micro level, one of my favorite things about him is he, this is, this is how involved he is. He in one letter is lecturing Jackie about losing an umbrella, which is like something that your parents or mine at least would have lectured me about in high school, like lost another umbrella. Lost his friend's umbrella, not even his. Yeah. But it's like, but they're, like in all the letters, like that's not the first umbrella. Yeah, it's you. You include an amazing quote that's like, I am pleading with you. Stop it. Which is like, I'm a mom and I've been like, please come on. In my, in my lowest moments, it was not. Um, He wasn't far off from what we would consider early American gentle parenting. Yeah, like a, a gentle nonviolent communication dad. yeah like he's trying he's not yeah. he's not in his best you know he's not his best moments all the time yeah and he one thing that I really appreciated about your book is that obviously you talk about the revolutionary war and you talk about crossing the Delaware and all the sort of iconic battle moments and you have that you kind of tick through his battlefield accomplishments but what you focus on is is how smart he was off the battlefield his accomplishments you know still military military related but that he was a smart tactician he was a spy he was involved in espionage rings and he was good at sort of propaganda (laughs) or getting through to people that way including through the cause of of sexual assault of women and children yeah at the hands of the British, that that was sort of like a brilliant way for him to uh, uh, increase, you know, drive up patriotism and support, you know, tragically, hypocritically set against, you know, the rape of slaves and women all around him constantly. Um, but th- this was something that he sort of was very skilled at, this ability to convince people and be char- charismatic. And that leads us into, I know I'm fast forwarding a lot, but leads us into him becoming president. We see he's the father of our country, but comes time to, you know, pick a president. And he's kind of like, I don't know. Oh, no, he doesn't want it. He 100% doesn't want it. This is one of the big things with Washington scholars. It's like some of them think that he 
secretly wanted it. And it's like, no, when he wants something, it's quite obvious. When he went to Philadelphia, when the Declaration of Independence, you know, he left before it was signed because he had a job to do. When he went there, he had been out of the Virginia militia for over a decade. He's like, no, 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 I couldn't possibly. And yet, yet he mm-hmm. stuffed himself into that uniform. <laughs> like he is now, you know, he's now like middle-aged. That was, he was in his twenties. Things fit different. And he's like, no, I couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly. And yet he is after hours going to every single house, every single church, every single like pub. He's shaking hands. He's doing all things. He was very quiet in this where other people were much louder. So there are all sorts of ways that, that he shows us when he wants something. He's not um, going to come out and say it. But then when they want him to be president, he's he doesn't even want to go to the Constitutional Convention. They're like, please, like, we won't get it done. And he hates the Articles of Confederation. So he goes. But it's all in service to the work that he did for eight years fighting the revolution. And he's at home. Mount Vernon has fallen into disrepair because of his time away. So he's both like very aware of what happens when he leaves and frustrated by it but also like, don't mess up what I did, what I sacrificed. And he doesn't want it, but they are like, we, they didn't figure out, the framers didn't figure out a lot about the presidency because they were staring at him in that chair, presiding over the constitutional convention and thinking he will work it out. We can trust him. He's given up power. That was a huge thing. And and then they start writing to him saying, okay, so you're going to be president. And he's like, no, no, whoa, whoa. I did my service. Martha wouldn't even go with him, which, you know, he didn't like because she was like, no, I've, I, I spent eight years wintering in the middle of like battlefield. Absolutely not. So this is not a good scene for him at all. And the other thing is he has the perfect reputation at this point. Mm-hmm. He is known as like a god in the world. This is a world that's dominated by despots and, you know, dictators and and kings. And he has, like, gotten the chance to rule. And he said, no, thanks. I'm going to go home. And I hope I'm home by Christmas. So can you guys, like, speed up this process? And he kept saying, I have everything to lose. And, in fact, when he's they, they come to tell him he's been unanimously elected, he, he, says, he writes to someone, I'm going to have to go to this inauguration. And I'm basically writing to my funeral. Yeah. And he's not... He could be dramatic, but he wasn't being dramatic. And, you know, he was right. It was fine. And we remember him obviously quite well, but it it did ruin a lot of um, his friendships with like Thomas Jefferson and other people. And it did affect his standing a bit. He was very sensitive and it, it, it exposed him in a way that he anticipated, but was not ready for. Yeah. And, and he can't get out either. He was a huge star. We loved him and we needed him. And yet he's also at this point, you call him. An arthritic retiree with like yeah. fogged hearing, a couple of teeth, and limited cash flow. It's true. But they were like, we need you. And they wouldn't let him retire. They say you already committed. <laughs> like, you know, like, too bad. He was very like, okay, I'll do this. Fine. But then you have him paired with Adams as a vice president, who's kind of a silly goose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ruined it for everyone who followed. Ruined it for everyone. And kind of like, wanted to insert all of this silly like pomp and and seriousness which everyone was like dunking on him for and then as you say it ruins everything because Washington's like I'm gonna make sure vice presidents can't really do much I'm gonna keep this guy far away from me he's causing trouble yeah and Adam writes to his wife that it's the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived he's pissed but um, dramatic yeah, he finally, they finally, and then and then they're living in New York because that's where, like, the seat of power is. But then 
they decide that they're going to move it to D.C., but in the meantime, they go to Philadelphia. And this is where, you know, this is where slavery comes back. I mean, it's always there. It's entwined into the story and in your writing. And I, I think what's really important about your book, too, I always had it based off of the history books. The person who was most concerned about slavery was Lincoln. And really that slavery and abolitionism was something that was happening at this time that people were incredibly worried about. And I mean, usually for self-serving reasons that the slaves would work with the British, that there would be an uprising, that people would be killed. But they get to Philadelphia and is it Washington Secretary of State is like comes to Martha and Randolph, is like, yeah, William Randolph. Look, yeah. Philadelphia has a law that you can't keep a slave for. What is it for? So can you can you correctly tell? No, no, you're doing really well. Listen, I just love story. So, so Philadelphia. Let me let me back up and just sort of put this in a context. I want to be fair and sort of show what their lives look like. Washington, as I mentioned, they didn't figure out a lot about the presidency, and so Washington is playing with the Constitution. He's playing with laws in a lot of ways that one does. But not a sort of like, I'm going to try to take this over. Like, he's just trying to push the boundaries in any way. One of the things he does is he creates the cabinet, right? He invents the cabinet, which presidents still use. So he, sell, he's, he sets a lot of good precedents and some not great ones. So so his secretary, Tobias Lear, and, and, and a member of his cabinet, William Randolph and Martha, when he's away, because he's doing these tours of the North and the South and because um, he is this unifying figure. That's why he's there. One of the things, though, is uh, Washington cut corners to save money and to just because of their comfort and what they were used to and expected. They wanted enslaved people. So they're renting a house from uh, basically a financier of the revolution and they fire the staff. And, you know, they have all sorts of things to say. The cooking's bad. They're lazy, you know, typical things. Um, and they bring, you know, their enslaved people from Mount Vernon. The thing with Philadelphia at the time, the uh, temporary capital of America before Foggy Bottom, Washington, <laughs> was finished, was it had a law that said if it said a lot of things, you know, if you were a certain age, et cetera. But if you were an enslaved person who was in Philly for six months, you were free. So Washington, they, they wrote these really clear letters, like, how can we subvert this law? How can we get around it? And they would take someone, you know, they'd take whoever the enslaved person was to Mount Vernon, just like across state lines for like a second and then come back because it reset the clock. And they were very concerned about the enslaved people finding out about this. Obviously, they did. And uh, several of them ran away. One of them, uh, Ona Judge, ran away and she just walked out the door and it became this hunt, right? And it's, and it's really public. This is not like, oh, I had to scour the archives for this. Washington is placing ads in newspapers that say like the president's enslaved person has escaped and, and pursues her basically until, you know, a little bit before his death, just a few months. And they just cannot imagine why Una Judge would go away because she, you know, why she would run away because they, um, she ha she's maybe like a half sister of Martha's and um, they feel like, well, we've raised her and we treated her well, which is, uh, you know, if you worked in a house, it, it could be better. Not if you were around Washi, the grandson, because he assaulted a lot of enslaved women, possibly Jack too. But, you know, you didn't have to work in the fields. You, you got nicer clothing, you presumably got more food. There were advantages. And Martha really felt like, I have treated her so well. So they just decided that it must be that like a Frenchman had seduced him. A Frenchman were always to blame, always to blame. And 
when they realize what happened, they're just like so offended. But the reason she left at that moment, you know, she could have left at a lot of different moments is because they were about to give her away as a birthday present. So if you love someone, they're part of your family, you don't give them away. And not only that, to someone who was like notorious, Nellie, it was notoriously, um, it's a granddaughter. She was notoriously like persnickety and the husband who she was marrying the the fiance it was it, she was going to be the second wife um you know he was uh lusty shall we say there was a lot going on that that we own a judge would look at the situation and think like i need to i need to avoid this at all costs she couldn't just ask them or if she did we don't know about it but it would have been no you know they decided on this um and he pursues her and it, it does bring it to a head. There are other situations too. There's um, two uh, more enslaved people are Hercules, his cook and his son are the sons accused of, of taking money, yeah. uh, you know, common accusation for servants of all time. And they're sent back to Mount Vernon and as punishment for Hercules, who wasn't even accused and had worked with Washington his entire life worked for him. He was put to the fields in really brutal work. And then he ran away and they're like, how dare he run away? So that's the thing is every single time, I mean, as if the state of being enslaved wasn't enough. Yeah. Um, every time they had great reasoning to run away and um, Washington just, there was a disconnect with them. Martha wrote things like black people are bad in their nature. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea that they are different. And Washington would say, look, freedom's great and all, but these people are better off being owned by me like he writes that very explicitly over and over and over again so there's this there's this concept there's an infantilizing and there's also this primacy of your own needs over someone else's no one is you know they're not fully formed people to them they're not real people well it's you you use a good word which is denial especially in his sort of misunderstanding of why ona wet escape and she she does she walks right out of their house she it's not like a dramatic you know, break for it. She just walks out into the street and leaves and she is caught, but she is, she doesn't come back. She's not caught. She's found. So she goes to New Hampshire, which is a free state and she has children. And this is what, this is another thing that's like amazing is you can go see her. They can't take her. They'd have, I mean, they could, you know, drug her. They could beat her. They could take her on a ship. No one's going to say anything about that. That's fine. Um, that happened all the time. There are all sorts of Washington passed the first Fugitive Slave Act. And they ha- at this point own a judge, you know, because I said this went on for years. She has children. And they basically the the emissary who's going says, like, look, he'll you can work something out. He can say that he will eventually, you know, free you. We can have all sorts of negotiations, but but it's gotta happen with the first step to that is you going back to Mount Vernon, which of course there are no guarantees. And she's like, okay, well. I'll go back, but my children aren't because they don't belong to him. And Washington's like, no, I'm not agreeing to that. The fact that you even think you're worthy of having this conversation is crazy. And I don't negotiate with enslaved people, particularly ones who have fled. And he doesn't. He doesn't with any of them. And that is what is, oh, so she doesn't go. And basically the, there was a great, um, Erica Dunbar wrote a book and the title is Never Caught. And it's, it really goes into this. Yeah, he is furious that she would have the audacity to negotiate with him. It's sort mm-hmm. of amazing on her part. So at this point, you know, he he did he he did a lot as a president. He established a lot of things, but he also listened a lot and he he consulted a lot. It wasn't like mm-hmm. 
he took his time, I think, in sort of understanding. Did, yeah. Do you think that he felt like he had accomplished enough when he left office? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was definitely done. I think he could have, he, he <laughs> yeah. felt, you know, always like he could have accomplished more. But for the beauty of Washington, for 233 years, America enjoyed a tradition that Washington set the precedent for, which was the peaceful transfer of power. Something that made Washington different than like Benedict Arnold or other people who felt like they had been denied something, worked really hard to get it, is he could be satisfied. Mm-hmm. He could be happy. And that's that's a life lesson, right? So he is the reason he has to be talked into it. He's like, this is a bad idea. Like, I'm good. I've accomplished everything I need to. The allure of power, the I'm going to be invited, I'm going to be honored. I'm going to like that is not a thing for him. Once he gets to a certain level, he's fine. The holding on to all that land and refusing to sell it, I think, is a different. I think he could never be satisfied with security, like personal security as far as wealth. I think that was, you know, part of the struggles that he faced with his mother early on. But as far as prestige, power, all those things, he was fine. He was more than ready to leave. He wanted to leave after one term. Yeah. And then he goes and his life winds down Mount Vernon. And, you know, you have an amazing chart of Olive because he did have a lot of illnesses, but um, had a, a... a, a slow, painful death with a capital S. His his fault. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and he had been out running around in in the cold and the rain and got sick. And then, you know, they come in and all these doctors try to do stuff and varying like, you know, enemas uh. and letting and it it just sounds awful. And here's where one of these classic misrememberings of him that you mentioned comes back, which is that he freed his slaves upon his death. Well, no, he actually didn't. He said that when Martha died, right, that when Martha died, the slaves would be that she could free them, but she didn't free them. She gave them to her grandkids. Well, so it's complicated. So what um, Washington's paved the road. To, mm-hmm. So, so Martha's the enslaved people that she brought with them to th- their marriage. He he basically owned them and called all the shots as a man in early America until he died. They were never fully his. So, so if she had died, they were going always to go to the heirs of the Custises. So his step grandchildren, her grandchildren. But Washington, through pressure, through legacy building, through a lot of other things, um, paved the road. You can't say that he freed his slaves because only one man walked free that day. That was a, na- a man named William Lee, who he had owned for about, you know, 15 years. So not as long as other people. And it's because he always thought he was exceptional. He'd been by his side during the revolution. And Washington felt indebted to him. Will And William Lee at that point was crippled. You know, it was not a great situation. But one man walks free. Now the rest of them, it's up to Martha. And the reason it's up to Martha is because Washington still sees them as property and Martha he wants her to be wealthy and so he wants her to keep exploiting their labor maximizing profits and that can only happen with a full workforce but he does put in a clause which is if you want to emancipate them earlier you you do you like you have the right to do it Martha though he knew would not do that because as I mentioned before she would write letters saying you know blacks are bad in their nature there was nothing to indicate that she would she would say oh you know what 
Yeah. I'm going to let them have this, but they knew about it because as much as you try to get enslaved people to be illiterate, you know, there are people who learn to read and Washington, because this was a legacy building thing, he made sure that that, that will was going to be sent around and people were going to see it and it was going to be published in papers. And so it got back to them. And so Martha began to fear for her life. And we know this from a a letter that Abigail Adams wrote and a couple other ones, but Abigail really always good for spilling the tea. And she wrote that, you know, Martha began to fear. She heard rumors that they were going to burn down her house and she just could not sleep at night and decided it wasn't worth the bother. Um, But it's never clean, right? Because then a hundred and, you know, 23 people are emancipated, but those people are married and have had children and have, you know, for generations now with the enslaved people who belong to Martha, which means that when Martha dies shortly thereafter, a couple of years, everyone, her enslaved people are split among her heirs, like four or five different places. And people never see each other again, like families, husbands, wives, children, grandchildren, sisters, that's real. Um, and so it's a complicated story that really, but to say he freed his enslaved, you know, his slaves upon his death is just to me, like every time I hear it, I get like a little, a little gut punch. You mentioned it's on a plaque at Mount Vernon or noted in a museum. Is that still there? Um, They've been changing it word by word every time <laughs> someone powerful writes an essay or says something. So like a, a Charles Blue, a New York Times columnist said like, um, you know, you can't say this word, you can't say that, blah, blah, blah. Um, so they say as close to it as they can, but it's changed over time. So the best practices, sort of like what museum policy is, is you're supposed, if an enslaved person ever existed in the world, in the room, you're supposed to mention them. But you can walk into still to this day, you can go on a whole tour of Mount Vernon of the house and not hear about an enslaved person. Not always, right. but it's happened enough. Marcia Chatlin, a friend of mine who's a professor at leaving Georgetown now at Penn, won the Pulitzer in 2021 for history. She took a tour there as a part of like a team building thing at Georgetown and did not hear about slavery. When she came to hear me talk there and there were hundreds of people, it was a sea of white people and then Marsha, that's how I spotted her yeah. immediately. Yeah. Um, so it's very real still. Yeah. Thank you for not being a thigh man of history and for- Thank My pleasure. Making breaking the legacy. Have you heard from any of the thigh men? Have you heard from- no, I mean, I I heard from some of the biographers, you know, a lot of most people are pretty excited about the energy that the book brought. And um, it really enlivened Washington studies. And I at the time also worked on a Washington TV series with um, Doris Kearns Goodwin. And so it really brought him to the forefront in a different way, which I'm very proud of and exceeded my expectations literally every single way. You know, I feel quite fortunate. Ron Chernow didn't cut people wanted him to I know everyone was contacting him all the time didn't say anything I wrote him an email you know just saying like look everyone's really focused on this I and I say in the book I like I like his work I just don't like a lot of choices he made but I do really like a lot of his work um but he did come after this Hamilton scholar this young Hamilton scholar and that was um surprising and so that's a more complicated story but um no otherwise we, we seem to all be good I'm, gl- I'm glad there's it's no trouble with the thigh men. Um, no, not so far. I'll keep you posted. Thank you for your time today. I know it's it's a big it's a big weekend for you as a, a historian of George Washington. But um, thanks thank so you for coming on the show and for talking to us about our country's first dad, our founding daddy. Yes, our founding thank daddy. You.
Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.